As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Michael Saka. I'm Joelle Steiniger. And I'm Matt Goldman. And we're having 20 minute talks with entrepreneurs teaching you how to launch your product into revenue. Check out our book at howtobuildarocketship.com to reserve your launch discount and to download a free chapter. This is the talk that convinced us to raise the pricing of Hookfeed. We talk with Brennan Schwartz, co founder and CTO of Wistia. He talks all about the early days of their company going from bootstrapping to raising a round eventually to not making a sale for months after raising a round. There's a lot of good stuff in here, and we were able to relate a ton to it as self-funders. I think you will too. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. We're here with Brendan, one of the co-founders of Wistia. Brendan, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me, guys. Psyched to be on here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you guys got started um, on Wistia and how the team came together? Okay, this is a, this is an eight-hour story. Okay. No, this is, um, <laughs> um, well, I think it's worth noting that uh, we started... So I started this with one of my best friends from college, Chris, um, and we set about to do something very different. I mean, which is a common story when starting a business, right? Um, we both kind of knew we wanted to start a business. Uh, we weren't exactly sure why, just that it would be kind of like a fun adventure. Um, and I think that was really, at least for me, that was the main reason, like that things could change at any time. And it was this exciting um, new thing where you were kind of in control. And so we had all kinds of like, in college, like crazy ideas. They were more like poor, get rich quick schemes, I suppose. Um, and it kind of, uh, we, we started talking about this and we got more serious eventually and like came up with this idea that we thought was like this amazing, amazing idea, um, which turned out not to be so great, at least for us. Um, so our initial idea and the thing that kind of like got me to quit my job and Chris was doing freelance film stuff at the time to, for him to turn that off was to build a competition website for filmmakers where, um, and a bunch of companies have done this successfully. So it actually is a decent idea, but it just wasn't right for us where big brands would, um, you know, host competitions and filmmakers would compete to make like commercial content or stuff for them. Like you've seen maybe that Doritos commercial for the Super Bowl a few years back. That was kind of that model. Mm -hmm. Um, so we thought that would be really cool. And so we, we like started working on the product, coming up with all these like, you know, designs for it and then realized like this was just far too ambitious for us. We like barely knew what we were doing. We realized we'd have to sell to big brands. We had no sales experience and no network. Um, we thought we could build a product, but we really had no reason to think that I suppose at the time. Um, and we ended up launching instead a portfolio website for artists um, and mostly for filmmakers. So this is like around the time that YouTube was getting started but not a lot of filmmakers were using YouTube. The quality wasn't good. Um, and there was just something about it that people didn't really like. They wanted more control. Um, so we launched this thing. The product was pretty good. We solved a lot of technical challenges. It made it really easy to upload video um, and like have it look great on the web where that wasn't like a really kind of a solved problem at the time in 2006. And uh, we didn't know what marketing was. so. <laughs> We had about maybe like, you know, 60 to 100 people using this, most of which were, you know, friends that we like begged to be on this thing. Uh, they all really liked the product, but there wasn't like a real, you know, reason to be on there, I suppose. Um, at this point, it was completely bootstrapped. And, you know, we had both worked a year out of college, so we didn't have very much savings. And when we were going about this, like friends and family, you know, were like, oh, it's great that you guys are doing a business. But, um, you know, who are you selling to? You know, what is the product? Who's going to buy this thing? And we're like, oh no, this is 2006. Are you kidding? Like, we just need eyeballs on this. Then we'll figure out that later. And they're like, all right, well, talk to us. Talk to us when you're running out of money. Um, and we were very frugal and we got, we had made all these financial forecasts um, of like, you know, how much video viewing there was going to be, how much the servers cost, how much a rent, what, like every expense that we had, uh, and I think it had us running out of money in like, I don't know, four to six months or something. 
clearly we did not get far enough along to actually make anything happen in that time. But through, I don't know, sheer force of will, we kind of like scrimped and saved and managed to keep going. Um, but eventually, yeah, we just found out the hard way that artists have no money and it is very hard to get them to pay for anything. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And it was, so we had, we had launched that portfolio website for artists uh, and people were using it, a very small number who are enjoying it. And we had a friend of ours uh, who we actually work with today um, was working at a medical device startup and he had this need to share video between clinical sites and their headquarters. So these surgical videos with sensitive information, kind of like, a, you know, surgical procedures for the patients. And they were sending DVDs around all over the world. So they, one of the clinical sites was in Chile and they'd send it to Watertown, Massachusetts, and you can't even overnight a DVD. It would take two days to get there. Um, and they were just like, this is a, there's gotta be a better way. And he's like, you guys know a lot about video. Like, can you please like build a solution to this? Like, I think people would pay for it. And we're like, come on, man. Like we're for artists. Like, you know that, like <laughs> we're not going to sell out like that. Um, and we were like, just use YouTube. You can make it private. And he's like, no, no, it's sensitive information. It's like, there's just no way they're going to do that. And so we kind of got to thinking the thing that like connected in our head that made this like an attractive problem to work on was that we were because of Chris's experience in film, we knew a lot about what filmmakers needed. And there was another, a similar problem there where people were FTPing files all over the place. Um, and you know, you'd have the wrong video codec and your clients like don't know how FTP works. So it's like really hard for them to see the videos. And if you're making a video for someone, you want to present it to them so you can get feedback and, and adjust it and, and so forth. And then finally deliver the, the final product. And so we realized that that product was actually like, is one and the same as what these guys needed to share the surgical videos. Um, and was also something we had been talking about to the users of the portfolio website who really wanted a private way to collaborate on video projects they were working on. So like we're big product guys and that was the thing that really clicked for us. We're like, oh, this is a much bigger, like it wasn't really attractive to build like a one-off, um, you know, thing for like medical, private medical video sharing. Although I'm sure that would have been, you know, a decent a business into it onto itself. But um, we are like, oh, there's like tons of uses of private video sharing. And uh, kind of through that process of building something, uh, taking a long time to build something, very slowly running out of money, very, very close to running out of money, um, and really, be, and like really loving the process and wanting to work for ourselves and, and build something. Um, like that's, I don't know, that, that was like a big turning point for us. And also something that we kind of went the complete opposite direction from like, oh, let's just build it. And you know, we just need eyeballs on this to like, you know what, if we build something really valuable and we get in front of like one person at a time, we can convince them to pay for this and we can like very slowly build a self-sustaining business. So the pendulum swung the other way. Cool. You totally sold out. And <laughs> we sold out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that's great. I mean, it's it's such a um, it's a great journey because it's not what you would expect um, that this medical uh, medical company would need video, and that's how you started this uh, company that's actually very popular in now the the tech world. You would say, right? Oh, what we do now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's mostly marketers primarily. Um, 
to and to and it's not private video sharing at all. I mean, so that was another part of the journey that. It, we were like, there's YouTube and there were, you know, if you remember back then, there were like a ton of fast followers to YouTube. That was a really crowded market and video was like the hot thing. And we were two guys, you know, in this like house in Cambridge. And we, all we wanted to do was just survive. Like we wanted to be in the, like the least competitive market of all time. So we're like, Oh, if we're hiding out in this private video sharing niche, like nobody will ever come here. It's like too small of a market. Um, and it's funny that over, we did that and we kind of grew slowly. And, uh, at some point people really liked the product and our customers were begging us to, they're like, yeah, we really want to add this to our website, these, these videos. And we're like, no, no, no. Like we're private. It's like private video sharing. Like just use YouTube, use Vimeo. And they're like, no, we really like your interface. You guys have great. Um, we had some of the statistics back then, like the video heat maps. Um, and that was really attractive. And so they basically kind of like forced us into doing that almost against our will. And, uh, it's in a, we were so against it that we kind of, we like caved in for doing it for a few customers, but instead of having something in the product, because we still weren't convinced we should do it, we would mail like email video embed codes to people. So there were like these like artisanally crafted embed codes, uh, that a guy here named Ben would like write up and then like put it in a text file and attach it to an email if you wanted to embed a video on your website. So that's obviously a lot of pain for like a customer really wants to do that. Uh, so we're like, all right, there must be a need here. And that's, I mean, that nowadays that's like primarily what we do. A lot of people do private video sharing with us still, but it's mostly for marketers. Uh, I was actually going to ask, um, with such a big transition from where you, where the product used to be as this portfolio site to the private video sharing to now what Wistia is today and, and the public side is, like you said, the biggest part of your business. What kind of time frame are you talking on those kinds of changes? Oh, that's a great question. So, I mean, one other really good thing that happened, I think from essentially failing, although we didn't, at the time we didn't, wouldn't admit that it was a failure when we built that portfolio site was we were really meticulous about building that product and like every UI component and whatever we could find, we'd reinvent because we thought there had to be a better way. Uh, and when we got to kind of building that, the first prototype for what is Wistia, which is the, the, and this was the private videos sharing side, we probably built that like front to back in two weeks. It was like really fast and we really built the bare minimum, um, that we need to get it in the customer's hands and have it be valuable for them and have them pay us. Um, so we launched that with a paying customer and that was like a really important lesson for us because we were just, you know, we'd spend forever trying to perfect every little thing only to find that basically nobody used it. So, um, it, it, a lot of those changes were really fast for us. So that, that happened in about two weeks was that we launched the first prototype of Wistia with a paying customer. And then probably I would say maybe a year later, is when we started doing um, some of the public uh, video sharing stuff. And then we did another rewrite of the product a few months later, now that we had that in there, because it was kind of bolted on and we wanted to bring it all together so it worked properly. And at that time when you launched, what did your pricing look like? <laughs> we, uh, well, so that first customer, um, which was this kind of this friend's company, we walked in, I think we made a pricing sheet. I think we probably looked at 
Basecamp or something like that because that was like the only SaaS product we knew. Yeah, and we like wrote some numbers on a piece of paper. It was probably like a hundred bucks a month, two hundred, four hundred, with some like really arbitrary stuff in there. And we, I remember like Chris had it flipped upside down, and we like slid it across the table, and they looked at this and like kind of laughed at us, and we're like, all right, we'll just take the most expensive. Like, are you seriously want to sell this to us for four hundred dollars a month? Like. Because they were used to paying contract. They're like, we'll just pay you like a salary to build this. And we're like, oh, no, no, this is a product. You have to, you have to pay per month. This is how it's going to work. That way we can say no to you when you want certain features. Uh, so we completely made it up. We had absolutely no idea. Um, and even, um, let's see. So once we had that, probably for the first like three or four months that we were selling the product, the website, if you went to Wistia.com, was just like an H1 tag that said, Hello Wistia or something like that. It was there was no place to to get a Wistia account or anything like that. It was so we went like too almost too far in the direction of like fully manual like offline sales uh, just because we felt like we had more control that way and we could really figure out what people wanted. Um, so so was how were you how were you finding people to sell to offline? I mean, were you just cold calling, cold emailing? What did that look like? We, well, at this point we had a little bit of a network. It was still pretty minuscule, but so we, we had this medical device company. Um, and there was another kind of like a friend of ours who ran a production company in Providence, who was our second customer who used it for reviews and approvals. And so, you know, we went down there dressed up probably in a suit and tie, I don't know. And, you know, knocked on his door and we're like, gave him a demo of this product and forced him to sign up. And, um, we, we did, we did do some cold calling. I would say that wasn't very fruitful for us. Uh, although I think there's one person who Chris called, we, so we call, after we got that video production company using it, we we're like, all right, here's a target market. We can, you know, try to find people who want to do this. And there's somebody he called, there's a complete cold call who's now like been a customer for six years, I suppose at this point. Um, wow. he's like, you know, pretty good friends, uh, which is, which is pretty amazing. But the cold calling we tried, it did not work very well for us. So it was, it was kind of like a slow, um, like finding customers where we could. Another customer that was really early was, um, it was at like a startup conference type thing. And we were talking to people, another guy that we were working with, um, found this guy and he was chatting with him about what we do. And he's like, Oh, that's really interesting. You know, just thinking this guy had another startup, but he actually just was really interested in startups. And he worked at a very big, um, like telecom company in their training department. And he's like, Oh, this would be perfect for video training. Like, and he was just like really interested in helping us out and they became an early customer as well. So it was, it was just kind of like where we could find people. And a lot of it was very serendipitous. Um, so how did you guys um, then transition from these kind of one-off sales into the direction you're going today, which is primarily to um, marketers and, and actually publicly using the product? Yeah, it was a slow transition that took place over many, many years. I mean, so even now you can sign up uh, for free. And so again, kind of in the same theme, like from going like, the opposite approach I'd suppose that like most companies take nowadays is you couldn't even sign up online. You, there wasn't even a phone number. Then eventually there's a phone number or we'd sell to you in person. Um, when we launched a free plan that people can sign up for, we did that. I want to say like two, two summers ago. 
um, which is pretty recent in our history, really. And so what happened is eventually we had a website. Um, I don't think anyone would ever go to it because we had no, there was no way for anyone to find it really. And we never, we didn't even have a trial for a long time. So there was no way to sign up. Maybe there was a contact form, I think, and I'm sure no one filled it out. Eventually we built a way to like provision accounts automatically. So sign up for a trial account. And when we did that, we were like, oh, cool. Like now maybe we could get somebody to, to sign up for this. And we had enough stuff on the website that kind of like pitched the value of the product. And we signed up for AdWords, Google AdWords, um, put a few things in for private video sharing. And one of the first trials that we got was uh, Cirque du Soleil. And we were like, what the heck is this? Like, wow, this actually worked. And so they signed up. Um, and a guy we were working with, Adam, uh, called them up and they actually like it, they needed a solution to share a video privately. Um, they do all their casting. Well, now it, I don't know what they were doing before, actually, but they've been using us for many years to do all of their casting. So when anyone tries out for Cirque du Soleil, there's either they're in person and they're videotaping it or they submit video and that goes into Wistia um, or now it's a system built on top of Wistia. Uh, and they send it to producers all over the world to review, um, to, to, to coordinate this giant, like global casting effort. And so they had just signed, they were like one of the first people to sign up through this AdWords trial for the product and, um, started paying for it. They were like, I don't know, probably like customer number 10 or something like that for us, which was kind of wild. And again, was like kind of right place at the right time. And just that the market was very small and there wasn't, there weren't a lot of products out there that were kind of doing what we were doing at that time, I suppose. Um, but that was kind of like the first step towards like a, a more frictionless sale. Interesting. So how have you guys, um, kind of competed with, uh, like a, a Vimeo or a YouTube with, you know, having to, to maintain this infrastructure for video and serving video, which can be um, very server intensive. Yeah, I think it, I mean, we started at the right time. I mean, and even, even YouTube and Vimeo as well. Like when I, when I was right before I quit my job and we were thinking about doing this video thing, that was like the first thing that crossed my mind. It's like, oh my God, it's going to be so expensive. We're not going to be able to like stream this video, it's going to be too expensive. And so then I started calling around to various content delivery networks to get pricing on, you know, like transfer rates and stuff like that. And I remember calling, I don't know if I'd call calling companies out and saying what their old pricing is, I'm sure it's fine, but called up Akamai, which is like kind of the gold standard, right. For content delivery, um, networks yeah. and def certainly was at the time. And they quote, they're like, how much are you bandwidth are you going to do? I'm like, I really have no idea. Well, like what's like for the lowest volume, like what, what are we talking? And they're like $5 a gigabyte. And I was like, $5 a gigabyte. Like, oh my <laughs> gosh. And of course, when you're going, you know, going to start this, we're like planning for like great success. We're like, what's this going to look like when we have like a hundred million viewers on here? And it's like, this is a staggering amount of money. Like this is not going to work <laughs> at all. Um, and somehow we just like through, you know, ignorance basically like, you know, being completely ignorant about all this stuff. We're like, ah, whatever, we'll figure this out. So 
when we launched that portfolio site for artists, there was like an, another uh, CDN that was getting started in New York called Panther Express, which was started by one of the guys from DoubleClick. And we were talking to a sales rep there and he was getting like all psyched up about what we were doing. And I think he thought we, we were like a little coy about it, but we were like, we were just trying to get like a good rate. And he, I think he thought we were going to do a lot more bandwidth than he did, or maybe he just wanted to sign up like some more people, mm -hmm. but he gave us like a rate of like 49 cents a gig or something. So that was like a 10th of like what we had been quoted before. Like, all right, this is awesome. And we, and he was like, yeah, all right guys, like let's we're psyched to see this thing launch like next week. Like it's going to be awesome. And we had really had no idea how much bandwidth we were going to do. I mean, we were kind of, we had run some math that we knew we weren't going to be completely screwed if it, if it was successful, but we really had no idea. And so our bandwidth bill comes for the first month, uh, after operating this portfolio website and it was like 26 cents or something like wow. that. And I was like, I emailed him. I'm like, Hey, where should we, should we send you? Like a, <laughs> you want to like check? A, he's like, Oh my God. He's like, I can't believe you guys just, no, he just went into cruise to more than like 20 bucks. Like, <laughs> So, I mean, if you're not doing high volume, it's pretty cheap. And, and so I, the reason I say we were lucky is because there was all of this kind of like, you know, pay as you use it type of like, you know, the Amazon web services stuff. We used S3 um, and these CDNs. It was not like a minimum, minimum monthly commit that we were able to get. And so it was really cheap for us to get started. So it wasn't like we had to throw down thousands of dollars a month um, just to, you know, do no traffic and then be out a bunch of money. It cool. just kind of scaled with us as we grew yeah. and especially getting started with the private video sharing. I mean, that was, you know, there's no case where you have like a viral video, right? Um, like gonna cost us tons and tons right. of money. Right. So it was really, it was, yeah, it was always the case that that stuff didn't, didn't really, I don't know. It is expensive, but it, like per unit, it's not, it's not bad, especially if it's a, for a business use case and people are paying for it. Right. And you're covering your costs, obviously through your pricing model. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I would love to, you guys have some, you know, very well recognized companies on your homepage, MailChimp, SEO, Moz. Um, I'd love if you could share kind of how those relationships came about. Did they come to you? Um, had you met them and, and you offer, you kind of pitched your service to them? Uh, how did that come about and how did you grow the trust that allowed them to, you know, use your service on their, on their homepage? Um, the Moz one, I can't really remember. Chris can speak better to that one, but the MailChimp one, I think, is an interesting story. And like, we were always, since we had heard of MailChimp, which was like pretty early on in our, in starting Wistia, we were huge fans of what they did and like followed them very closely. Um, and I think it, I can't remember the order of in which these things happened, but. The short story is it was built over a very long time before they even used our product or probably even knew what we did. Um, we, we like built an integration with them, like completely without their kind of like help, just using their public APIs and sent it over to them and they, and they thought it was interesting. I mean, it's still like really small potatoes, right? For them, like based on our scale and their scale. Um, but it's, it's always flattering when somebody does something like that. And, and what, are the, what we, was the mail, you know, the integration? What was the integration? Yeah. The integration was, it's actually the same thing that we have today, which is super useful, is that if you, in our product, you can get an embed code for MailChimp, um, which is basically like an image with 
certain email merge tags okay. such that when you send it out to your list and people click through, it'll put their email address in the uh, URL and then our, um, our video player will detect that and pass it through to our backend so you can see like on the individual heat maps who those people are and what they watched. Oh, cool. Um, and it's really powerful because if you were watching a bunch of stuff on Wistia.com and eventually later signed up and like clicked through on one of our emails, you'd be tagged and then I could see all your kind of historical viewing data as well to kind of tie in like, oh, this is what, you know, videos he watched that caused him maybe to sign up. Okay. And so did they send it out to their list or, or what did they MailChimp do with it? The first version of it, I don't think so. Okay. Um, and there's like been a second version of the integration after we kind of knew them better. But so we did that. Um, there was another time, basically we were like frantically trying to get their attention for like okay. probably the better part of a year, two years. We, um, we, we, they, they, I think they were hitting, hit like a million customer or, uh, kind of like users or something at some point, some big milestone. And we made a video that was just like that we were really excited for them with like all of us in it uh, and sent it around and we had like stats on it so we could see that like a bunch of people there watched it. Okay. Um, and that was cool. And it was just like, you know, just cause we liked them and it was like friendly stuff. It, it wasn't, it wasn't even at this point we were like kind of wise enough to know that like, this is not how a sale is made that we didn't just gonna, you know, call up and give them the pitch and they're suddenly going to buy. Um, and then at some point, I think we just got an email from Josh who was doing their video stuff over there and said, Hey, I'm, I'm looking, uh, I can't remember if they, I think they were using like blip TV maybe. And he's like, I'm looking around at, at other solutions. I'd love to check you guys out. Um, and so I talked to him on the phone kind of about what they were looking for and what they needed. And, uh, they ended up actually going with bright cove, uh, for, which is a, a I suppose a competitor to ours. We don't run into them a ton cause they're a little bit like, uh, up market from us. Okay. But it, they definitely like looked a lot more mature, especially at the time. Um, and like, you know, MailChimp does a lot of like, we, we looked very good kind of like a small business thing. I think they were concerned that like, we wouldn't be able to like handle the volume despite I'm like, no, no, it's fine. We can do it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And there were a lot of features that the product didn't have that I was like, look, like, you have no idea. We love you so much. Like I will personally build these features for you if you want. Uh, like, I don't know. It was a little too desperate probably. Um, but like we continued to talk after that, uh, and it was really friendly. And then I think, I think they had signed up for your contract and near the end of that, I got another email from Josh and he's like, Hey, like, you know, this is coming to a close. We want to like talk to you guys again. And we ended up flying down to Atlanta and hang out with them for a few days. And, um, that was awesome and like got to know them a lot better. And we had come a long way that year. Um, and after that they had, uh, signed up and, you know, we've been down and visited them many since. And, um, Ben has given us a lot of great advice just cause it, our, the business model is so similar and they're very far in front of us, um, around the stuff. So we look up to them a lot and it was, it's very cool to actually be working with them and have them be like a customer. Wow. That's, that's really cool. Um, that's a much different story than I was anticipating. So that, that's really refreshing <laughs> to hear. Yeah. So it sounds like it was almost like a two year, um, 
sale, but not even really a sale. Um, yeah, it wasn't really a, a sale. I think, and most of the the most successful partnerships we have are definitely not like a kind of salesy business thing. It's just because the products make sense together and the people like we get along with other people and like see eye to eye on stuff. And and the most successful partnerships we have, there's like no money that trades hands. Either. Interesting. And so what might one of those look like? I mean, I think the MailChimp and the Moz ones are a great example. Like we promote them because we use their product and we like their product. Um, and we talk about it to our customers and I know that drives business for them and, and it's like vice versa kind of, it's almost something that we found at least for what we do is, and it's easy to imagine that it works this way that, you know, MailChimp or Moz are, are companies that other people look up to, like we look up to them. Mm -hmm. And if you see that they're using something like Wistia for their video hosting, then that builds trust and you're like, oh, okay, like if they're using that, that must be pretty good. And that also sends us customers. So it's not even a partnership per se, you know, okay. but then it's, it's just kind of like two friendly companies, um, working together. It's like networking as a entire yeah. business, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, it, and it's, yeah, there's a lot of personal relationships between people here and people at those companies. Um, and it just like goes, I don't know, runs very deeply. It's not just like a kind of piece of paper about like, yeah, send us this many customers and you get money back or something. I don't know. That's that cool. That's, never, that's yeah. really refreshing. Yeah. What has been the biggest uh, driver for you guys of, of new signups? It, has it been like the learning center, the blog? Um, what kind of like mechanic have you guys been able to create that has driven signups? Well, there's not... I think the one thing that we know for sure is that there is no silver bullet for this stuff. And despite having searched for it for seven years and to continue to search for it, it's always the stuff it's word of mouth is still our biggest uh, driver of growth, which is an amazing place to be. But at the same time, it, it it's not something like you can spend more money and just increase word of mouth. Right. Yeah. Um, it's really like what we have found works is, just kind of like incrementally improving things that we have and building stuff that we know our core audience will like. And so the way that we think about this stuff is that, you know, word of mouth is a big driver for us. We have an audience that really cares about what we do. Um, and the more that we can do right by them and, and create content that's interesting for them, it causes them to, to talk to more people about Wistia and kind of like bring in more people into our audience. And so it's really been like a very incremental um, kind of growth for us over the years. And something about that is really uh, like comforting to me, I suppose, maybe from having tried to do like really early on kind of go out like, oh yeah, we're going to do this and it's just going to suddenly explode. It feels like very much like within your control, right? Like, oh, if you can just do this and it will reach maybe you know, one or 5% more people like that doesn't sound like as hard as like, all right, everything is riding on this one piece of content that we've been working on for a year. Right. I mean, that's terrifying. Yeah. That usually doesn't get released actually. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was just, um, kind of thinking, thinking back to what you said, you know, you've been at this for seven years. Um, you've gone through a lot of iterations of the product, the product, um, you've, grown quite a bit at, you know, what you said is a pretty comfortable pace. Um, looking back 
over these seven years, uh, are there things you would have done differently or more quickly or, um, maybe had less resistance to, or, uh, what, you know, what would you do? What would you do differently looking back? Uh, if anything, Hmm. That's a very good question. Uh, I'm very good at rationalizing, uh, <laughs> past failures. Um, so that's, a, that's a tricky one. I think one thing that I, like I still struggle with a lot is, um, I don't know, I guess like trusting your instincts on stuff and especially starting out like we knew we had absolutely no experience doing almost any of this stuff. And so we were constantly second guessing things that we did, or just that if someone presented something to us that didn't feel quite right, we were like, oh, well, we don't really know anything about business. This is probably how things are just done in this world. And that's almost never the case that that is actually true. Like, I think things, like when you're doing something right, it, it's like clear kind of from all angles. Like there's nothing magical about business or, or building a startup. It's just kind of like slow, methodical work. And when things are right, they just, they all make sense. Like no matter which way you look at it, or at least that's the way I think about it. And I feel like we've gotten ourselves into trouble kind of at various times or, or just maybe like spun our wheels a lot when we were like, thought something was like, we're like, oh, this could be it. This is like the magic thing. And we just didn't really understand it, but it was just alluring that like, maybe there was something we didn't understand that could be really good that we should be, uh, I don't know, going after, I suppose. Um, and I mean, that's, that's really abstract, but I guess we've been lucky that like, we haven't made any giant mistakes along the way. Um, but certainly like we, so we raised, we were bootstrapped and when we made that shift after we got a few customers early on, we decided to raise a round of angel funding. Uh, we had met these two other guys who were a lot more experienced than us and, um, they really got what we were doing and we wanted to work with them, but they needed to be paid salaries. And so we kind of like thought about this a lot and, and decided to, to raise some money. And we, one of the guys, Adam was like a really experienced sales guy. And even before he left the job he was at, he had sold a Wistia account to, uh, Nestle nutrition. So we're like, Oh my God, like this guy's amazing. Um, and he was amazing, but we were like, because we had like a few of these like sales in a row, um, we were like, this is going to be like, what, what are we doing? This is like the easiest business in the world. Like we're going to be, we're going to raise this money. We're going to be profitable in four months. Like just, we were like extrapolating, like, uh, you know, off of these like tiny data points. And clearly this just like, you know, if anyone else was looking at this, they'd be like, this is just us. This is not the case. Like this doesn't make any sense. But you know, through talking to investors and doing this, like we got all like hyped up on this thing and basically kind of set ourselves up for this like huge roller coaster of emotion. So we raised this money and then in maybe I want to say like April of 2008. And then we did not sell a single thing for the entire summer. And we were like, Oh my God, we have failed. <laughs> we had something, we were like, you know, ramen profitable and we were bumping along and we we're like, we got too greedy. What did we do? We have failed. We can't sell anything. It was just horrible. It was horrible. It's terrifying. <laughs> um, did you I mean, keep that, them on? Yes. I mean, they were great. Yeah. Um, and Adam just left recently. Uh, but Ben is still here. Um, so yeah, we've worked together for yeah seven or six or seven years now. Um, 
it wasn't anything to do with those guys. It was just like, yeah. we, yeah, we had some early successes and we didn't understand why. And we like thought that we were like somehow like onto this like magical thing. <laughs> so one other thing that we've noticed is that with a lot of the SaaS companies we talk to, they're established now, but in the early days it took a year, two years longer to get any amount of like sizable revenue. And during that time they were doing either consulting or working on full-time jobs. Um, what did the very, I mean, you've talked about how you were going after a totally different market and running a lot leaner back then, but how long did it really take you guys to get comfortable for, for you and Chris? Um, so we were trying to, th so we, we lived in, I actually still live in the same house. It's like a six person house in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, uh, the rent is very cheap. I mean, I don't know if these very specific numbers would, would be interesting to share, but I think we, I was paying $700 a month for the room I was in, half of which was our office. And Chris was living downstairs and we, it was a bunch of friends of ours. So we were all splitting food costs, but since they weren't there for breakfast and lunch, um, that was very helpful for us. And so we were living on like the, the extremely small amount of money and we had signed up, um, the medical device company, I think they were paying $400 a month and maybe we had someone else paying $200 a month and sign up somebody else. So we kind of got to like around a thousand dollars a month, I think at that point. And then we were more or less like covering from that point, we could kind of like survive. Maybe we were like, you know, 1500 bucks a month and we're like, all right, we can survive like this forever. We've done it. Um, when we raised that money, that was terrifying because I think our burn was around $40,000, like with, with all the servers and, and salaries and stuff. And we were, we were paying ourselves, then we were paying ourselves, I want to say like Chris and I were paying ourselves $80,000. Um, and we were like, this is really stupid, especially after we had sold nothing. So he like lowered our salaries to $30,000 a piece. And we're like, all right, we can survive like this comfortably in our house here. Um, and I, we put this chart on the wall where we'd write down every sale that we got. There weren't a lot of things to be written down on this chart at this time. And I put a line that was like for $40,000 and then a line with our recurring revenue at the bottom. And like anytime we'd make a sale, we'd like, you know, put like, it would be the, you know, the, a timeline going along and we'd like bump it up and like see how far we had to go to get to, to profitability. And it was like a crippling, like, I don't know if it was a good idea to make that graph. At first I was like, Oh, this is great and motivational. And then we'd like get a sale and it would be like, so the first thing we sold after that summer of sorrow was Adam sold something, uh, to this machine and tool company in Canada, this guy who worked there, but it wasn't for that. It was for his son's hockey team. And he sold it for $12 a month. And we were like, what are you doing? Like, we can't, like, we had just sold something for like $10,000 for this like enterprise con like contract. And now you sold something for $12 a month. This is insane. Um, and like registering that little blip on the wall of $12 a month to try to get to $40,000 a month, um, obviously doesn't make a huge difference. So, so sorry, this is a rambling answer to this question. It, that took a long, that took, I don't know, another probably two or two and a half years, um, to kind of get back there. So that was really terrifying in terms of like, you know, it feels really good to get to the point where you're self-sustaining, obvious, of course, 
Um, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think the, uh, the lesson to be learned is charge more. Yes. And sure. with how did you guys justify, I know the cost of video is very high, but when you were selling it in the early days, how did you justify hundreds or thousands for this? Uh, <laughs> well, I think, I mean, we never really I'm trying to think like what the most that we really ever kind of sold it for in the early days. I mean, th those were probably our highest prices, like the, some of the early people who were paying a few hundred dollars a month because it wasn't really like usage based at that point. It was more just like for the value of this product, I suppose. Um, and I mean, one good thing about, about going the route where you don't have your pricing online to start is that I think especially this day and age, it's really people will see your pricing and like if they don't really understand the value of it, it's easy for someone to say like, oh, my God, this is so expensive. And when you don't have that much like data to react to, it's really easy to like talk yourself. I, th I think the point you're making is like it's really easy to talk yourself out of um, a higher price because you can look at so much competition and people who are at scale and you can see that they're charging such little amounts for this. And you yourself are a small company and you're like, I would never pay this much money for something. Um, and that's like a, a really dangerous kind of like line of thought, like when you're trying to survive. Um, yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Cause yeah. We're, like we're charging nine to 49 a month and we know it's way too low. Um, but we don't really have anything to back up the higher prices currently, even though we know that, you know, it's worth that. It can actually save you money or make you money. Um, but it's hard to, hard to make that pitch and to know how high to go early on. But yeah. good. I think the best convincer of that is to write it down on paper and see how many you'd have to sell at $9 compared to $99. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's a lot easier to lower your prices than raise your prices. Although I guess I would say it's easy. It's, it's actually easier to, to, as long as you grandfather people in, it's easier to go both directions. But, um, yeah, certainly. I mean, it, and you can imagine, I mean, if you're just trying to get to profitability, right, you look at those numbers and you're like, yeah, I can sell a hundred of these things. Like that's like a number I can wrap my mind around. Like a 10,000 is like a, just like a, an impossible like cliff to climb. Um, and I think, yeah, it's it, the hard thing is like the rejection, I guess that you get, if you have a price that's higher and you're told many times, like this is too expensive, either you have to kind of go after different people who are willing to pay that, or you've made a mistake in pricing it. But I think it's just, it's really easy, especially because often like starting a company, your peer group are people who are also kind of in companies similarly sized, um, to get feedback of like, this is too expensive where that might not really be true. And like, it's crazy to try to think back into like how we thought about pricing when we were a lot smaller to now where, you know, we're not like rolling in money, but like, certainly like we're doing pretty well. And like being able, like a hundred dollars a month for almost anything is, is very cheap to us. It's more about like the time, like how much time will this take to invest in and, th and think about and like, will it save us time versus like, the exact dollar amount of something. Right. And I think yeah. that's how like kind of like a medium to, to larger company or even some small companies like think about that. But I remember being much smaller and like, I did not think that way. It was like, Oh my God, this is $10 a month. Like that's a lot. Um, so yeah, we had people 
tell us that we were full on idiots for trying to charge <laughs> 14 bucks for our last product. Yeah, I don't I mean I guess it's yeah, everyone everyone has a different kind of value attached to their to what what it, a dollar means to them and, and time. Like yeah. and it yeah, it's hard. It's pricing is is very very difficult. <laughs> we continue to change our prices. We've probably changed our pricing over 100 times without exaggeration and continue to. Wow. That's <laughs> It's an ever evolving process. <laughs> oh, it never ends. <laughs> But one thing we have learned is at least, you know, maybe it's different for something like Apple where people are like on the website refreshing to see if there's new pricing and different products. But nobody, almost no one really notices when you change your pricing, like as long as you don't change people who are paying, right? Like that they would get that deal or if, if you lowered it, that you would, um, you know, allow them to switch to the cheaper pricing. But we have changed our pricing so many times without anybody noticing at all, especially when we were a lot earlier, there were times where the pricing on the website was different than the pricing in the application because we were just trying to do it quickly. I mean, it's like <laughs> not exactly the most professional thing to do, but we were like, all right, we just want to try this out and we'd have it different on, on the website. And a few people were like, Hey, the pricing is different. We just gave them the, you know, the lower of the, of the two prices. But for the most part, nobody even notices that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, you're really the only one on your site every day, probably refreshing it. Um, exactly. Oh to, yeah. <laughs> to see, cause we've changed our price three times. We've had different pricing models and not once has anyone come back and said, Hey, you're ripping me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm sure if they did, you guys would, you know, it's an yeah. easy problem. You're like, I'm, you know, sorry. Like everyone can understand that you're a business, you're trying out other prices. Like, okay. Yeah. That's a normal thing to do. <laughs> yeah. You would just give them the lower price. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, um, well, very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on here. Um, this has been great to hear about your kind of journey to, to where you guys are today. Um, where can we keep up with, with you and with the developments of Wistia? Uh, we have a pretty active blog on Wistia, um, where, where our antics are chronicled. Um, and I suppose, the only social network that I'm remotely active on would be on Twitter. So I'm, I'm Brendan on Twitter. My claim to fame. It's a pretty good name. There, yeah. <laughs> got in there early. Yeah. I had no idea what it was. It was right when we were starting and I was like, Oh, it's this Twitter thing. What's this group text messaging and like signed up with my name and, uh, it turned out to be something meaningful. So <laughs> very cool. Well, um, thank you so much. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you haven't yet, pop open iTunes and subscribe to be notified of future episodes. We have some really great ones lined up. And while you're there, leave us a review. We really appreciate each and every one of them. Among the
one discover equal when you under covers we would discuss injustice century you suffer from auction blocks to record covers we be a canvas gauge painted by the other chain your bitch whole baby mother niggas in these rules afro color uh want us to back it up shy right and yell freedom tell us have patience to waiting on the 40 acres mule of the world abused by folklore black bodies are right aside supply stores lady to lady i understand for sure minds ignores the wounds free to explore While the wound bleeds, the wounds of the deep south Can't wash it out, shit is real, conjure bell Put us on our knees, make us fiend to clean down Keep it real, you afraid when we speak loud When we scream, you seen a ghost in the haunted house Simmer down, it's the black, you can't bleach out And the story we gon' breathe in and breathe out Lady, 